This is the Public Record Podcast. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. My very special guest is the distinguished economist Dr. Christopher Thornburg, founder of Beacon Economics. If you've ever attended an economic summit, particularly here in Southern California, Dr. Thornburg was probably the keynote presenter. We recorded this interview at his office in Los Angeles. This is the first of a two-part podcast. On part one, we'll discuss housing, and on part two, we'll look at transportation. I began by asking Dr. Thornburg if we have a housing crisis. First of all, let's examine what the term crisis means. Okay. Um, I mean, it's gone on for decades, so well, maybe it's said, not a crisis. It, I, that's you know? exactly right. Yeah. The immediate place people go, of course, is they say, well, of course we're talking about the cost of housing, right? Housing isn't affordable. Kids will never be able to buy a home. Mm-hmm. People, uh, you know, all these renters are doing horribly. Their rents are going through the roof. They miss one paycheck. Their life falls apart. Next thing you know, they're homeless. The cost of housing is a function of supply and demand. Someone is pushing that price up. Prices up just don't go up on their own. Someone has to push them. Somewhere along the way, there has to be somebody out there who wants that property, wants that gallon of gas, wants that bar of gold, whatever it is. And that's why the price is getting bid up. People always fail to recognize that. Uh, They want to think that at some point in time, there was a world in which housing was magically affordable and every 24-year-old could buy their own home and live a wonderful life with lots of excess money. That world never existed. Mm -hmm. We made that world up. Um, But housing is more expensive compared to the paycheck today than it was, say, in the 1940s, right? Not according to the data. No? Okay. No, not at all. Not at all. If you look at the share of income people spend on housing, it has been slowly drifting down over the decades. It may well be that, that when you look at the nominal prices, it was much, much less back then. But, of course, so were incomes. And let's also acknowledge that the quality of housing in the 1940s well, that's true. was substantially. That's true. And let's also acknowledge that the government-mandated extras like underground electrics, curbs and gutters, those weren't common right. in the 1940s. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so there is a lot. Obviously, the houses are much safer, they're yeah. much more spacious. Uh, it's just a different kind of beast, right? And, of course, uh, the best thing, of course, unlike back in the 1940s when your your house was probably typically filled with those horrible little things, um, kids, I think they're oh. called children. <laughs> you know, Gen Z, Many of them. Gen yeah. Z doesn't want any part of those things, right? right? Yeah. Or millennials, they're not having kids. So they but, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned housing size. Yeah. Even though housing prices are sky high, uh, people still want big homes. And again, I'm going to go back to what I just said. High, housing prices are not sky high. Yeah. You know, a lot of my of my work, particularly over the last four or five years, has been trying to deal with the 800-pound gorilla in the in the economics room that for a lot of years I was ignoring as an economist. When I went to UCLA, I did my PhD. I was trained in the Chicago School of Thought on on how you deal with economics. It is a social science. But Chicago approached the social science with a mathematical uh, set of tools that would make a a typical physicist blush, right? (laughs) And the math has an extremely enormous value to 
the social sciences. By allowing yourself to formalize, by creating underlying theories, you create testable implications and you can do a better job of truly figuring out what's going on. And that's all fine and wonderful. But at the core of that math was one basic assumption that we just took for granted, um, and that was the idea of the rational agent, a homo economist who internalizes the information around them and arrives at conclusions accordingly. What we see in our world is something different, and that is that in reality, the economic reality and the social narrative don't necessarily converge. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. They can stay apart uh, almost permanently at Mm -hmm. some level. And and that has particularly been profound over the last decade. Um, We came out of the Great Recession, and ever since then, we've been in in a world that I call the world of miserabilism, which is to say, no matter how good the data is, there's going to be some reporter or some politician out there who will explain to you why it's bad. Is that the title of your new book? It should be. It's a great title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but but it's not. I'm, I'm not the only person talking about this, right? I mean, there's a lot of folks out there who are primarily coming out of the behavioral economics field. Whether you're talking about a guy who's a pure social psychologist like Jonathan Haidt, or um, of course a guy who wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics as as being a psychologist, in his uh, conversations about human decision making and the flaws therein, or even recently, um, Robert Schiller wrote a book called uh, 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 Narrative Economics. Now he, of course, famously wrote Irrational Exuberance back in the day, right? Uh, which which was all about the dot com nonsense that happened twenty years ago. But now he's gotten to the point where he talks about the importance of narratives. He goes so far as to say that look, if if an economist doesn't take into account these narratives, he's missing a very real mechanism for economic change and so we do have to pay attention to the stories that people tell each other even if they're wildly off base because those stories have an impact now i can go on about bitcoin and all that kind of stuff or even the idea of what the pandemic meant but what's interesting is when it comes to the housing conversation this idea that housing is astronomically unaffordable and how can anybody pay this it's unbelievable there is nothing new about this narrative so let me kind of let me kind of summarize what I think you're saying, and tell okay, me if well, I'm right. Yeah. If so, if the, yeah. the average wage earner was paying, let's say, two times, three times his income for an entry level home in 1940, is it still the same today? They weren't paying two to three, four times their income for an entry level home in 1940. That's that's completely false. <laughs> what were they paying? They were, I don't know. I have to sit down and pull yeah. the numbers. But, but you're, saying, you're saying it's about the same today. I think it's probably, it was probably higher to, uh, lower than. I'm sorry. Higher, you meant. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's lower today than it was back in the 1940s. But a couple of things have changed. First of all, in the, sometime in the 1970s, the two-income households became standard. So what do you do with the third of the population who are single? It, again, it's irrelevant. Uh, the, the affordability of housing is not a two-income phenomenon. Isn't it? No. Okay. No, it's not. And yes, there are a lot of families that have two incomes, but that isn't what allows them to afford a home or not. Um, a two-income family very often is a lower-income family. They need two incomes um, for everything, mm. right? Even if it's you know, saving money for the future and, and, and paying for the, the kids' toys right now. Um, that's just a standard 
feature of our world. By the way, again, there's nothing new there. No, there, it wasn't in the 1950s this magical world where women all could stay home and live that, that June Cleaver life. With the pearls. With and the pearls yeah. and always being you know, perfectly dressed <laughs> when, when dad walked in the door in his three-piece suit and had wonderful advice. Um, no, even back then, a lot of families had, had to have second incomes to support themselves. That's the nature of the system. So, again, we, we see ourselves constantly inventing this mythology of past. But what I was going to say is, again, not only is this nothing new. I, I remember pulling out, um, uh, in I think it was 1980, there was a, a big report written uh, by Rand. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Rand is a big report on rental housing. Because in 1980, it was determined by the population that be that rental housing had Clum had just climbed to incredibly unaffordable, and nobody could afford rents, and, and it was a train wreck, and government had to do something about it. And Rand wrote a report saying, no, that wasn't true. And, and it, it's funny how that it feels so similar. Here we are almost 45 years later, and it's the same damn thing. Go the other direction. You could go and look online and fish around for conversations from ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. And one of the big complaints of living in Rome and, you know, like basically, you know, 50 B.C. or 50 A.D., the rent was too damn high. And how could anybody afford to live in this city anymore? And now, of course, they said it in Latin. Mm. <laughs> well, then, then, maybe, then. then maybe what you're saying is the problem isn't the price of housing, but the configuration of housing. I mean, if you have a single person who can only afford $350 a month, and a studio apartment in any city starts at least, let's say, $1,500, where do they live? Oh, okay, again, all sorts of assumptions there. Yeah. First of all, who makes $350 a month? No, I mean, that's what they can afford to spend on housing. And there's a little bit left for everything else. And I'm talking about a Spartan lifestyle here. Okay. Well, you do what anybody with low income does. You either continue to live with your parents or you get roommates. Yeah. I had roommates when I was a kid. You know, what's interesting is how few Gen Zers have roommates. In my generation, every 23-year-old well, that's lived a, in a house with four other people. That's a really good point. And as you probably know, colleges can't give away two shared dormitories. Everybody wants a single. I was a single. Yeah, yeah. So, again, we, we it's our expectations that have gone up. And, yeah, that expectation of having your own bedroom, that's expensive. Mm-hmm. Didn't used to be that way. I mean, my uncle back in the day told me, uh, this is, you know, he, he said, why did I get married the first time? He goes, this is the only way I could afford to move out of my house. Mm. <laughs> I got married to a woman who had a job, and I wanted to get out of my parents' place, and that was it. We, we, we had to get married and to, just so we could get out of the house and get an apartment. Um, so... This there was never this mythical world hmm. where housing was affordable and everybody lived in a in, in a wonderful place. It didn't exist. Again, we have reinvented the past to suit um, our own psychological needs. We all like to feel like the universe is 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 on our case. It's it's beating us up and it's not fair. Hmm. We love being the victim, right? Yeah. And that's where all this comes from. But again, any objective look at history suggests that housing's always been expensive. We'll continue our discussion on the economics of housing with my guest, Dr. Christopher Thornburg, 
in a moment. Multimedia dominates business communications today. 83% of consumers prefer multimedia information over printed text. YouTube demos and product reviews, tutorials, documentaries, explainers and new business presentations. TV and radio commercials, infomercials, live event announcements, kiosk and exhibit narrations, telephone voice prompts, and so much more. But don't choose just any voice to represent your brand. Ken Allen Voices offers a team of veteran male and female broadcast talent who can deliver that professional network television sound that makes your message stand out from the clutter. Ken Allen Voices can also turn your messaging ideas into a finished script optimized for spoken performance. Ken Allen Voice's state-of-the-art recording studio can also clean up many noisy video dialogue tracks with specialized software that works like Photoshop for audio. Visit KenAllenVoices.com. We're back with Dr. Christopher Thornburg and our discussion on the economics of housing. So in L.A., it went from 3.04 to 2.75. It doesn't seem like a lot, but understand that's about a 10% decline mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. people per household. That means just to keep up with housing demand and to keep your population constant, LA would have had to expand its housing stock by 10%. 10%? This city, it takes six years to get a building permitted. There's no, they, they, they put maybe a, a, a half a percent to their housing stock per year, maybe a little less than that. There's no possible way they can keep up with that kind of surge in demand to live here. So the only equilibrium factor is prices. Prices are going up because there's a ton of demand to live here. And that is why a certain portion of people are choosing to leave. Look, the price is the mechanism we use to allocate scarce resources. When there's more demand than there is supply, Price goes up to get rid of the people who aren't willing to pay that price to allocate it efficiently. So is the reason supply isn't going up is all the red tape? Oh, yeah. Six years to permit a building. Okay. The zoning laws. There's been some wonderful studies that came out of UCLA that showed the city of Los Angeles, like 40 years ago, had, if you looked at their zoning map, they had room to build for roughly... 6 million people, 7 million people in the city of L.A. by itself. Over the next 30 to 40 years, they downzoned and downzoned and downzoned and downzoned to the point that now there's only room for 4 million people in the city. And guess what? There's 4 million people in the city. In other words, zoning says we already have too many people. <laughs> so we have decided to limit the scarce resource called housing. The economy's doing great, and we wonder why prices are going up. Okay, okay. You made it scarce. By the way, if you want housing prices to be lower, there's a simple mechanism. Crush the economy. Hey, look, Detroit housing is really cheap. Have you seen how cheap housing is? Oh, that's a good point. Toledo, yeah. Toledo yeah. Ohio. Sure. You get super cheap housing there. Any any big industrial center with no industry anymore, exactly. you're right. Absolutely. You're great. Yeah. Cheap housing. Go to West Virginia. Lots of cheap housing in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But people are coming here. That's why prices are going up. Let's move on to, uh, we have a little time left here sure. for this segment. Let's talk about homeless. What, yep. you, what, you, oh, let's oh. say you're meeting with the governor. Yep. What would you tell the governor? It's not an economic problem. It's a social problem. If you want to stop homelessness, you've got to protect the renter. 
Yeah. Uh, eviction moratoriums. You got to have rent control. You got to have affordable housing mandates. You got to tar and feather a landlord on a daily basis, right? Let's, yeah. let's teach the bums a lesson. But everything I just told you, incomes for renters are going up. People per household in renting, ho- renting households is going down. It's being filled with young, educated kids who are taking advantage of this great economy. Look, again, go back to the idea that our renting population is doing great. They're spreading out. Well, if they're spreading out, who loses? Well, again, it's those people who can't or won't accept that bidding war. If they won't, they move. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pay these prices. I want a different kind of lifestyle. I'm going to move to Texas. I'm going to move to Arizona. Great. Good for them. But unfortunately, there are certain portions of people, typically who have mental health problems, addiction problems, some other sort of issue, or maybe they're undocumented, maybe they have no education. Whatever it is, this is a person, and they're having a tough time in life, okay? Well, these people don't have the wherewithal to move, nor do they have the wherewithal to pay these current rents. And so what ends up happening is they're getting pushed out. The reason we have rising homelessness is because all of those former flop houses are being turned into high-end condos. Aha, uh-huh. okay. This is the issue. When you recognize that, you realize eviction moratoriums just encourage people to spread out more. The only way you're going to fix homelessness is to expand the housing supply. Simple as that. This idea that it's an economic problem, completely false. Yes, it is true that these people are not seeing their fortunes rise with a broader economy, and we have to deal with them on that basis. But the idea that this is an issue that reflects the stress of the other 90% of renters, no, it's utterly false. And when you have that idea, you pursue the wrong policies and you fail to make the situation better. The one thing I can say is for all the efforts, they've failed miserably. They haven't accomplished a damn thing because they're looking at it in the wrong way. And that's one of the reasons why the narrative is so dangerous. You know, if you don't recognize the reality of the situation, you can't possibly put into place the appropriate policies to deal with that situation. It's as simple as this. And none of this isn't to say we don't need to help these people. We do. But the best way we can help them is by walking away from this ridiculous idea that they are economic refugees, that they are being caused by evil landlords. Mm -hmm. This is not the situation. These people desperately need help. The guy I'm watching a lot is the new mayor of San Jose. He's got it. He understands. And what is he doing? He's setting up tent camps. Forget this permanent housing nonsense. You're not going to get these people into permanent housing. You're not going to do it. They need to be stabilized. And the only way you're going to do that is to get them into some sort of monitored housing right now. And you cannot build permanent housing to deal with this. Mm -hmm. We should be setting up tent camps with a heavy, heavy population of social workers Mm -hmm. and, and safety workers and crisis counselors to be there to help these people. The quicker you get them off the street, the quicker you get them into those tents, the quicker you get them the help they need, the better off their lives are going to be. And if you think you're going to do that with permanent housing, well, as you said, as you drove here, 
You saw tent camp after tent camp after tent camp. Definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Good point. Good point. Um, Speak briefly to uh, converting offices into residential. Well, we have too much office space. We know that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as bad here as it is in San Francisco, but we all know that. Um, But a couple big issues there. Yeah. First issue is the zoning doesn't allow for it yet. Um, you know, again, zoning's in the way. The back, city is so far behind. Back to so that red behind. tape thing, yeah. Okay. I know. It's ridiculous. That seems to be the fundamental problem here. The, it, the, the always. The foundational and, problem. And, and, well, there's a bigger picture there. Um, but the second part of it is also an engineering standpoint. And the engineering standpoint is your typical office building isn't easily converted sure. into housing. Yeah. If nothing else, just for plumbing. People don't appreciate this. Offices don't have plumbing needed for housing. But there's an easier way of dealing with it, by the way. What if we said, had a little rule that said, hey, if you turn down that office building, you can have by right to build anything your little heart desires. Hmm? Get the red hat out of the way. My guess is you'll see office buildings dropping like flies. Interesting. Okay. Because you give an the incentive. developers an yeah. incentive to go in and do it. Economist Dr. Christopher Thornburg, founder of Beacon Economics. Join us for part two of our interview where we discuss the economics of transportation. The Public Record Podcast is a public service of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. If you enjoy this episode, I hope you'll share it with your friends and be sure to subscribe with your favorite podcast host. And speaking of podcast hosts, I want to give a shout out to Heard.fm, who is featuring the Public Record Podcast in their forthcoming app. Search your app store for Heard.fm. H-E-A-R-D dot F-M. Until next time, be sure to make someone's day with something nice to say. Bye-bye.